1: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, July 5th. How was your fourth, people? What were you thinking or feeling about the country and your place in it on its 247th birthday? Think about it. Three years from now, the U.S. will turn 250, a quarter of a millennium. That's a long time in human history terms. To have a democracy, right? A republic if you can keep it, said founder James McHenry. Benjamin Franklin back then said, our republic is founded on the principle that it will continue only as long as the people keep democracy alive. So are the people doing that? Is the Supreme Court doing that? What a year what a three years, what a 21st century so far it's been, from September 11th to January 6th, from the election of Barack Obama to the murder of George Floyd, from the war in Iraq to the pandemic, from gay marriage as a new constitutional right, to the right not to do business for those weddings, to the Dobbs abortion ruling ushering in the era of former constitutional rights. And as often happens on the 4th of July week, Many Americans were digesting the blockbuster end-of-the-term rulings from the Supreme Court, right, on affirmative action, student loan forgiveness, on the right not to make wedding websites for gay and lesbian couples getting hitched, on the federal court still being able to declare if gerrymandering violates the Voting Rights Act, And on state courts, still getting to review district lines and, thank goodness, stop their legislatures from appointing fake electors after presidential elections. Remember the stolen election lie from 2020 failed 60 times in court, mostly state courts. Imagine if all the state courts were rendered mute by the Supreme Court. But that didn't happen. They protected protected the checks and balances, at least of their own branch. Still, the latest episode of the New Yorker Politics Podcast calls this the dark money Supreme Court as we all continue to digest what just happened there while Joey Chestnut only has to digest his 62 Nathan's hot dogs eaten in 10 minutes, a far cry from his record 76 just two years ago, by the way. Maybe the wildfire smoke got to his gastrointestinal system. I don't know. With us now for some 5th of July thoughts, Susan Glasser, staff writer and Washington columnist for The New Yorker, former editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy Magazine and Politico Magazine, and co-author of the books Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James Baker III, and The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021, all written with her husband, the New York Times Chief White House Correspondent, Peter Baker. Susan, always great to have you. Have you belated happy 4th, and welcome back to WNYC.
0: Brian, great to be with you today. Thank you so much.
1: Let's jump right in. You think about the state of our country for a living, not just on the 4th of July. Did you have any kind of dominant thought or feeling yesterday, or did you manage to just take a break and avoid sharks at the beach?
0: (laughs) The truth of the matter, Brian, is that uh, given the sort of uh, dyspeptic mood of the country, probably it's we all have a day off uh, <laughs> maybe, and see if that hits the reset button a little bit on our politics. I'm not overly optimistic uh, that that one day off will um, will change the trajectory we're on, but uh, you know it's a pretty, it's a pretty um disgruntled moment in American politics, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. Uh, I think there's a lot of alienation almost from any group, right? I mean, if you talk to, you know, if you want to put it in terms of the more privileged and the more marginalized uh, or Democrats versus Republicans, it's coming from every side, it feels like.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important observation, that it's not as though there's a clear consensus on anything. And that includes a clear consensus on who are winners and who are losers of this particular political moment, right? There's a a sense across such a a broad array of demographic groups, political affinity groups. uh, Everybody thinks that, you know, somebody else is doing better uh, or that somebody else is winning or is very focused on the threats and fears and concerns about that happening.
1: On the Supreme Court, you tweeted the other day, the backlash court is not done yet, My question is, how far will the 6-3 majority go over the years to roll back other established rights? What did you mean by the backlash court?
0: Well, it seems to me that that is pretty firmly the era of the Supreme Court that we've moved into, where it is is playing a renewed uh, role as almost a political lightning rod in our our system as it seeks to revisit what uh, many believe to be settled law uh, in a number of key precedents it has chosen in recent years, Dobbs being the most famous, and of course now this affirmative action ruling as well, you're looking at a situation where the court is now, uh, in, in effect, uh, reacting against Supreme Court decisions from previous eras of the court, and in, in what I would call a backlash way. Uh, rolling back rights is not something that we've seen as a recent history of the Supreme Court, and I think it's the foreseeable future.
1: What rights do you think they could topple next, realistically?
0: Well, I go back to uh, what I see as almost the, the template or the wish list uh, that both Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice uh, Alito, who are really the, the sort of extreme right pole at the moment of the, this current court, both of them at various points and various opinions have suggested uh farther places they'd like to take the court and i wouldn't rule out things like outright uh you know revisiting the historic 1964 griswold decision uh, uh enumerating an unenumerated right to privacy uh things like lgbtq rights uh are clearly in the crosshairs of someone like justice thomas whether the rest of the court this court will go along with it whether it will take a new uh, set of justices who might even be more conservative than some of those who are on the court right now. We don't know the answers to that, uh, but I think it would uh, be wrong to simply say this is the high watermark of uh, what this, this newly conservative backlash court would do and anticipate that there's the potential for more rollback of civil uh, rights in this country.
1: You talk about rolling back privacy rights under Griswold, that was the right to birth control. In fact, that was so limited, it was birth control for married couples, right, which wasn't necessarily legal in Connecticut at the time, if I'm thinking of the right decision. And the Supreme Court established a right to privacy in that context. Um, is that the the Griswold decision? Do I have that one right?
0: Yeah, I believe so. That's That's exactly what I was talking about. And, you know, again, I just think if you look at the principles on which some of the key uh, decisions were made in over the recent decades, you're looking at a situation where there is a a radical kind of right poll of this current Supreme Court. It's not maybe necessarily yet a majority that agrees with these things. And you know, look, it's 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 also already a sign of how far the center shifted, in effect, to the right on the Supreme Court, that who are the two people now basically in the middle most of the time? It's actually Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, if you look at these very interesting uh, sort of end-of-term analyses done in The New York Times and elsewhere, what you see very clearly is that um, both of those justices, who are very conservative, uh, nobody would say that John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh are anything like uh, not only liberals or progressives, but even really centrist. They're very conservative judges, and yet they have become the new center of this much more conservative Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, so the center has moved to the right. You're a political reporter, obviously, not a legal scholar, but on the wedding website ruling, um, if I was a Christian wedding website designer and decided that making a website for a Jewish couple would be to publish a theology I didn't believe in. Would that be okay now, too? (laughs)
0: Uh, You know, I I clearly would not presume to speak for uh, the Supreme Court or any of the other courts at this moment, because I think some core principles are now in flux. I I was struck in that decision that while it came from the right, that there was an immediate understanding from progressives and others that, you know, uh, free speech— uh, as a legal argument with this court could, could quickly go both ways and think about some of the things that are happening at the state level in Florida, uh, or in other conservative states where you have laws that appear to outright restrict speech. And so I think it's, it's sort of a two-edged sword right now. And, uh, I'll be very interested to see what the emerging kind of contours of this, of this new Supreme Court jurisprudence, where they end up. Because in recent years, as you know, um conservatives have been the ones using the tool of free speech related litigation to advance uh, their ideology and yet they have now left themselves open to a certain set of arguments uh you know that progressives and others may now use against them so i think that this is going to be an enduring battleground uh not only in our politics but in our legal politics
1: interesting and i have seen the shoe on the other foot argument In support of that Supreme Court decision, even in a narrow sense, like how about a progressive wedding website designer asked to publish a swastika or a maga symbol for a couple who wants to hire them? Uh, And, you know, personally, I think someone's God-given sexual orientation is not the same as hate speech or politics seen as hateful, but that's an argument. Is the decision possibly good for the progressive free speech as well as um, the conservative free speech movement, but are you suggesting that things like um, Governor Ron DeSantis's ban on um, teaching uh, on, on certain identity studies majors um, or, you know, teaching um, critical race theory, what they call critical race theory, usually inaccurately, uh, or ban on teachers calling students by their preferred gender pronouns that those could wind up at the Supreme Court on the side of free speech?
0: Absolutely, Brian. Why not? Again, you know, this is not, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know uh, how strong those cases would be in front of these justices. So perhaps, um, Uh, you know, those who specialize in Supreme Court litigation would be wary of bringing them. But I have to say that the broad brush principles now are in conflict, it seems to me, that conservatives, there's two strands to modern conservatism. And those, it seems to me, are in conflict. You have part of them that is uh, framed in absolutist free speech terms, right, including even in recent years, getting the Supreme Court to go along with the idea that corporations, uh, uh, have free speech for the purposes mm-hmm. of elections. That was right. the basis on which John Roberts and others decided to get rid of our campaign finance restrictions, okay, right. on the basis of right. free speech. So there's one strand there, but then there's a conflicting impulse, which is what you might call the earlier, uh, conservative impulse, uh, to restrict behavior, to regulate, uh, very strongly and, and into aspects of people's personal lives. And, you know, those, uh, impulses, it seems to me, come into conflict at a certain point in this kind of free speech-related litigation. So I'll be interested to see which strand of conservatism comes out dominant, the, the strand that says, I want to tell you what you're allowed to do in school, down to the level of restricting uh, the kinds of history you can teach, uh, the kinds of uh, ways in which you can uh, talk to children about things like sexuality and race history and other uncomfortable topics, versus Uh, the absolutist view of free speech that led to the Supreme Court decision uh, just last week that led to years of uh, free uh, speech-related litigation. I just think those things are sort of in tension and potentially in outright conflict with each other.
1: And for good measure, or for bad, a federal court ruled yesterday, on the 4th of July, who was working in the federal court system on the 4th of July? Somebody (laughs) was, that under the First Amendment's free speech clause, The government may not communicate with tech companies like Facebook and Twitter. Listeners, some of you have not probably heard this yet, that the government may not communicate with tech companies like Facebook and Twitter to ask them to manage disinformation like they did on COVID vaccines and a lot of fake election narratives. That lawsuit also brought by conservatives, which has won in court for now. So I guess it's let the disinformation fly as protected by the First Amendment said the Trump-appointed judge uh, around the same time as Joey Chestnut was downing his dogs. Have you gotten your mind around that one yet?
0: You know, I think that is a really fascinating case. We'll see what happens. To be clear, it's actually a, it's, it's an injunction. Uh, so it's not yet a ruling in the case itself, but the, the presumption is that there's a strong likelihood that the judge, uh, who is a federal district judge, will rule in favor of these Republican state attorneys general who brought... The litigation and and frankly some of the language is just outright kind of eye-popping alleging that there is literally a conspiracy between uh you know the federal government and these tech companies to uh somehow censor uh covid misinformation and other misinformation online and so you know there could be a, a, an appeals court that blocks this there could be it could go even higher up to the Supreme Court but for now what it is is a preliminary injunction that stands to potentially let uh, much more disinformation flow as a result of this and I, I think again you're looking at these conflicting impulses in uh, modern conservatism right now these free speech arguments uh, have worked very effectively with them uh, in the federal courts at the same time uh, you know there's got to be certain uh, limits uh, one can imagine. And it does seem like uh, this is a really extraordinary ruling. I have to underscore that. It it seemed to verge some of the language into outright conspiracy theorism.
1: So here's a clip of President Biden from uh, late last week after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action based on race in college admissions. Today, I'm directing the Department of Education to analyze what practices help build a more inclusive and diverse student bodies and what practices hold that back. Practices like legacy admissions and other systems expand privilege instead of opportunity. Susan, for you as a political reporter, did the Supreme Court last Thursday and Friday just help Democrats in the 2024 elections by mobilizing multiple parts of their base? We remember what happened in the 2022 midterms um, after the Dobbs decision, did away with the right to an abortion. Now we have black voters, young adult voters with the student loans, LGBTQ voters uh, with the wedding website decision, maybe more mobilized than they were a week ago.
0: Yeah, Brian, I think uh, Democrats certainly think that's the case. And it's interesting. I think they're grouping it under this broad idea that not only, as Biden said, is not normal, the Supreme Court, but that it is part of a general argument that you're going to see from Joe Biden running for re-election, that he's running against a kind of MAGA extremism writ large, uh, and that it's a sort of assault on kind of settled principles of uh, rights in this country, uh, that uh, Trump and his followers represent extreme attacks on things like the sanctity of, uh, you know, the election, which they tried to overturn in 2020. So I think that's sort of the general heading that it's going to fall under is uh, that there's sort of extremist, uh, radical, even right-wing elements in the society that uh, Democrats are running uh, to protect you from in, in 2024. So I do anticipate that being a campaign theme. I would point out that the affirmative action is a little bit different as a case in terms of the politics of it than, say, the abortion rights. Abortion rights a year after Dobbs are more supported by more Americans than, than previously in their history. According to most surveys, you're looking at, well, more than two-thirds of Americans one year later who support reproductive rights and are not in favor of that decision. That has not been the case historically with affirmative action, which has been much less popular even with Democrats Uh, uh, overall. And so it's not necessarily a straightforward one-to-one kind of like the Supreme Court threw out affirmative action and that's going to bring people to the polls. But I think as part of this broader argument that uh, a group of settled rights uh, and protections are under assault by a radicalized Supreme Court, I think that has a political resonance and you're definitely going to see that as a part of the 2024 narrative from Democrats.
1: Susan Glasser, staff writer and Washington columnist for The New Yorker and co-author of the books Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James Baker III, and The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Susan, thank you so much.
0: Thanks again, Brian.
1: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. See you tomorrow.